Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Okay, listeners, prepare yourselves for some serious learning today, some serious perspective and wisdom, the kind that a person can derive only through years of broad experience and intensive study. Put everything else aside and devote yourself for just a short time to one of the great condensed learning opportunities of your lifetime, the opportunity to meet the man that has been at the core of addressing some of the greatest geopolitical challenges of our time. Today's guests worked in key positions for Presidents Carter, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, and Obama. His bipartisan experience is dealing with the Middle East, Russia, the Persian Gulf, South Asia, and other challenges are, in a word, vast. Want a few examples? Well, under President Bush, he was director of the State Department's policy planning staff, working on U.S. policy regarding the former Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, arms control, and the 1991 Gulf War. He also worked with Secretary of State James Baker on getting Israeli and Arab leaders to attend the Middle East Peace Conference in Madrid. He served as President Reagan's Director of Near East and South Asian Affairs in the National Security Council, and President Clinton appointed him as Middle East Envoy, enabling him to broker various important agreements between the Israelis and Palestinians, including the 1995 Interim Agreement on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, also known as Oslo II. He was an important part of facilitating the Israeli-Jordan Peace Treaty, and attempting to bring Israel and Syria back to the negotiating table. He was special advisor for the Persian Gulf and Southwest Asia for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and a special assistant to President Obama for the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and South Asia. And by the way, if you haven't already assumed it, he's a Ph.D. and has taught at several prestigious universities, including Brandeis, Georgetown, and Harvard. He has been published in pretty much all the major periodicals, has appeared extensively on TV, and is also well known for several influential books, including The Missing Piece, The Inside Story of the Fight for Middle East Peace. He's a co-founder of the advocacy group United Against Nuclear Iran, and he even co-founded a synagogue. I could go on, but it's time for us to get started. Please welcome the extraordinary Dennis Ross. Welcome, Dennis. Nice to be with you. My pleasure. Well, it's really great to have you. And 
I'm sure our listeners want me to dive right into your your spectacular career. But this is a show about seeking the extraordinary and understanding what it is that makes people like you so, as I would say, extraordinary. So what I didn't address in your bio were the more personal elements of your own life story. And I thought it would be great if you could start by telling us a little bit more about Dennis Ross, the person, the part of you that we don't get to read about. Well, first, I aspired to be a professional basketball player, but obviously (laughs) I didn't have the talent to do that. So I had to fall back on different kinds of pursuits. I am still, for those who know me well, I'm still a sports fanatic. And maybe, I don't know if that sets me apart, but it certainly gives me some perspective. You know, I, I think I was very much shaped by... Uh, where I grew up. I grew up in the San Francisco area. I became politically involved at a time of both the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. And I think in a lot of ways that kind of created a a kind of ethic of wanting to affect policy. I worked in the Bobby Kennedy political campaign and was actually at the Ambassador Hotel the night he was killed. Oh, wow. And, And that, I mean, if you look for the kind of things that shaped me, that's a kind of form of experience where someone you deeply believe in gets assassinated almost in front of your eyes. And what he represented was something so profound in my mind that it was also a calling that he and his brother basically called on us to believe in public service, to believe we could make a difference. And I think that had a lot to do with me deciding that I would pursue an effort to try to affect policy. And, you know, I think, That's probably not something that most people know about me, but that's really very much where I think a lot of my determination to try to influence what we would do, I think it really stemmed from that. Yeah. Wow. That's 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 interesting story to hear that you had been there. I mean, you you must have at at some time thought many times probably thought about what the world would be like had he not been assassinated. You know, I have. I was at the time I was a sophomore in college and and believed very much in what he represented. He was this kind of unique blend of idealism and pragmatism. Uh, And that unique blend is what you need to get things done. You have to be motivated to change things because of your idealism. You have to be practical enough to know that you can't simply impose on others. And so you have to figure out ways to engage in compromise and mutual adjustment. I think in answer to your question about what the world would be like, We would have gotten out of Vietnam much sooner than we did. We would have addressed, I think, issues like the Kerner Commission report in 1967 basically said we were two different countries in terms of of race. And this was, that issue was so important to him, you would have seen a very different kind of, of leadership on that than we were to see. So I do think the path that we weren't able to take because of the assassination is one that has left us poor as a country and not nearly as, as I think, well-positioned either domestically or internationally as we might have been. Sure, and it's it's impossible to predict where all the ripples go as time moves on, but, but yeah, it, it's it's difficult to, to, to think that the world wouldn't be dramatically different. Yeah. yeah. So before I start getting into some of the details about your, what you know, I would describe as unparalleled career, I'd like to ask you just a foundational question, and and that is, you know, I guess just given the story you just told me, did you ever imagine your career playing out the way it has played out? It's a really interesting question because I ended up 
working for another political campaign, actually for George McGovern for two years. And after that, I decided my string of, of losses was such <laughs> that maybe it was time to get out of, of political campaigning and more into really building an expertise. So early on, I would say when I went back to graduate school, my attitude was, I know what I want to work towards. I want to aspire to have a position, a senior position on the National Security, National Security Council staff at the White House. So I did hope to be working on these kinds of issues. I will say I ended up getting there a lot sooner than I ever expected that I would. Yeah. Your your resume really does go on forever. I could have gotten into all of your books and some of the academic parts of what you've done. What's the most satisfying accomplishment of all of it? Is it possible for you to identify a particular accomplishment and call it the most satisfying of your career? You know, I would say there were probably two that stand out. One was I did play a pretty significant role in the reunification of Germany in NATO. And I'm not focused on that accomplishment per se, but I was at Checkpoint Charlie for the end of Checkpoint Charlie. Mm -hmm. And to actually see the reality of this take place, that was really a unique moment. I felt it as a unique moment. The other one was I negotiated the Hebron deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and it took two different 23-day shuttles literally around the clock. So when I achieved that, you know, and it was, it was really just this extraordinarily intensive effort. I think that was a unique moment for me personally, because that was something that I had to broker, you know, as in German unification of NATO, I was a small part of the overall effort. I, I played a role, I think, in terms of helping to bring the Soviets along at that time with it. You know, I was a small part of that effort. The brokering something where I was the broker, that, that gave me a real sense of accomplishment. So I didn't mention Hebron, and I just referred generally to agreements between yeah. the Israelis and Palestinians. And I actually referred instead to Oslo, too. Were you very involved in that as well? I was. The key to Oslo, too, was that the parties ultimately did it themselves, although what I did at a unique moment, I would say I knew when to intervene. And I actually told Arafat that if we didn't reach an agreement by the end of September— we were at a point where the, the PLO was not, we didn't revise the legislation that called the PLO a terrorist organization. It wasn't because we didn't want to, but the Congress basically said, we're not going to change that legislation, but we'll give you a waiver. And it meant that every six months we had to report to Congress that the PLO was living up to its responsibilities. And so I told Arafat that if we didn't reach an agreement by the end of September, that I doubted very seriously that the Congress would, even if we asked for the waiver, that the Congress would, in fact, grant us that waiver. And their whole approach to the negotiations changed after that. And that, I think that was kind of the turning point. So I was heavily involved in that, but still the the essence of that negotiation was really a bilateral negotiation where I could pick and choose moments of intervening, but I wasn't the one brokering it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know as much as anyone about what is probably the longest currently ongoing conflict between two peoples. And I I recognize that calling it a conflict between two peoples oversimplifies the matter. And again, you'd know far better than I, because there are many peoples involved in uh, in the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. But my overall question for you, and this is a big, broad question, but I'd love to hear your answer. 
Do you think we'll see peace in, in our time in the Middle East? Well, that depends upon how you define our time. <laughs> my, my mother lived to be 98, so, you know, maybe before, if, if I reach her stage, then maybe. It's going to be a long, hard slog still because we're, we're in, in some ways, we're in a worse position than we were when I was negotiating in the sense that there's complete disbelief between the two sides which was not the case when I was our, our main envoy. By the way, the way you described it actually was not that far off from the essence of the conflict. This is basically two national movements competing for the same space. That's the essence of it. Two national identities, two peoples competing for the same space. And the challenge is to figure out how you share that space, how you create two states for two peoples. When I hear some talk about one state, it's a reflection of what they really don't understand. One state guarantees an endless conflict. When you look at the Middle East, there isn't a state where there's more than one national identity, sectarian identity, or tribal identity, where that state isn't at war with itself or in a state of complete paralysis. So if you wish that future for the Israelis and the Palestinians, you'll call for one state. So we have to get from where we are, where there's complete disbelief, to the point where both sides can basically make the kind of adjustments that are going to be required. And we're very far from that right now. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some new possibilities. There are because of the way the Sunni Arab states now look at Israel. They see Israel as a natural partner. They may be holding back somewhat because of the Palestinian issue, but not nearly as much as most people think. They are increasingly fatigued with the Palestinians, and they look at what Israel has to offer, and it's not just security. They hunger to create progress because they realize they really won't have a future in stability without it. And they look at Israel as, you know, the startup with a completely digitalized economy. And that's what they seek. So it's not just the security dimension where they see Israel as a bulwark against the Iranians or Israel as a bulwark against the Muslim Brotherhood. It's also this important economic dimension that is driving, I think, a very different set of attitudes, which we can actually use to try to break the stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians. Is there any progress being made right now? That is, what we see in the news, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like anyone's talking to anybody. Do you think that they are talking? Between Israelis and Palestinians, there's very little direct progress. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a new Israeli government. It is a, an unprecedented government in the sense that it has two far-right wing parties in it. It has one right-of-center party. It has two centrist parties. It has two left-wing parties, and for the first time ever, it has an Arab party. They ideologically can't agree on what the outcome of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be, meaning the right-wing parties don't believe in a two-state solution, although they don't really have an alternative for it either. But they believe in a new terminology called shrinking the conflict, and that is focused very heavily on creating a new realities on the ground to reduce tension, points of friction, to improve the day-to-day -day realities for Palestinians. And this actually creates some possibility from the ground up. You still need something from the top down, and that's where I look at Arab states that are talking to Israel, including those that don't have a relationship with it. We can focus on how to get some of them, like, for example, Saudi Arabia, and I just returned from one week in Saudi Arabia yesterday, mm. Uh, 
uh, I look at the Saudis as having an interest in developing their relationship with Israel, and but not being able to move in one big leap. So you can think about a kind of three-way process where the Saudis respond to what we might offer, which is a set of suggestions about steps they could take towards Israel, see what they would want the Israelis to do to respond to that for the Palestinians, talk to the Palestinians once you have something in your pocket to say, okay, you don't just get to receive. And the Saudis themselves will also say, okay, what do we get from the United States for doing this? And to give you, to make it more concrete, let's say the Saudis would be open to establishing a commercial trade office in Tel Aviv. Not full normalization, not a full peace treaty, but moving with that kind of a step because it also addresses interests and needs of theirs. They might ask from the Israelis, how about you stop building outside the security barrier? Mm -hmm. The Israelis created a security barrier on about 78% of the West Bank closest to the Green Line, meaning the June 4, 67 lines. That's really areas where the vast majority of Israeli settlers live. 85% of all the Israelis who live beyond the Green Line live on about 7% of the West Bank. Not a surprise because the fact is most went there, not for ideological reasons, but for economic quality of life reasons. So they live close to the major Israeli cities. Now, if you build within those block areas, that's consistent with a two-state outcome. If you stop building to the east of the security barrier, which would be where a Palestinian state would be, then you preserve the possibility. So let's say the Saudis could be persuaded to establish that the commercial diplo- that commercial trade office in Tel Aviv, and the Israel and they would say, "We'll we're willing to do that, provided you Israel stop building to the security barrier, because that in effect means no more creeping annexation, and it preserves the option of two states. Doesn't guarantee it, but it preserves the option of separation, so you can have two states." One of the problems is if Israel keeps building beyond the security barrier, and they now have about 113,000 settlers who live beyond it, you're going to hit a point, and nobody can say exactly when, when you can no longer separate. If you lose the ability to separate Israelis and Palestinians, then you can't have two states. Then you have one state. And as I described, the one state guarantees a perpetual conflict. So your experience tells us we need to have a two-state solution. We need it because, as I said, both peoples have a very strong national identity. Those who think the Palestinians will give up their national identity ignore realities. They identify as a people. No one's going to persuade them that they're not. So you have to come up with an outcome that addresses that. And you have to do it in a way that secures a state for them, but also does it in a way that doesn't undercut Israel's security. And you know there are things that can be done to ensure that. I will tell you, I have come to the conclusion we will never get to an outcome if we don't build from the ground up so that you begin to create the stuff of peace, but we also have a top-down approach. And we need to involve Egypt and Jordan in it because in the end, the security arrangements will end up being anchored uh, in the West Bank with the Palestinians and Jordanians and in Gaza with what's going on in Gaza and the Egyptians. So there are new ways to think about this. But, you know, we're very far from creating the psychological reality or atmosphere that would make each side more open to making the kind of moves I'm suggesting. I I, I read, I don't know if this is true, but I read that you've made statements both for and against the division of Jerusalem. What's What's your thinking on the status of Jerusalem? I've been pretty consistent on, I don't know 
where I'm quoted, where I'm saying one thing or versus another, but I'll just, since I have an opportunity right now to put it on the record with Please. you, say it. Look, at the end of the day, there are 300,000 Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem. If one is concerned about the demographic balance between Jews and Arabs in Israel, there's no way in the world you want to absorb 300,000 Palestinians into Israel. So I do believe, and by the way, if you go and you look at the Arab part of East Jerusalem, the differences between the Arab part of East Jerusalem and the rest of the Jewish part of East Jerusalem and the rest of Jerusalem is profoundly different. And for those who say uh, that Israel should be treated as one city, I mean, Jerusalem should be treated as one city, it's not treated as one city today. Mm -hmm. The investment in infrastructure is totally different. Number of hospitals, totally different. Uh, schools and education space, totally different. So you, you can't pretend it's one city when it already isn't. So my position is, end of the day, there should be a city that isn't divided, meaning I'm in favor of no division of the city, but two capitals for two states. And you can do it. You can have one city council, right? You can have you know, two different mayors for the different parts of the city. The city, if you think about it, it's, it's really three different cities. It's a religious city, so you have to have a special approach to the religious sites. It's a day-to-day administrative city, so you have to create an approach for administration. To give you a sense of what that means, in the old city of Jerusalem, which has about 38,000 people, the quarters, you have the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Muslim quarter. These are so tightly tied together if you spring a leak in one of the quarters, you have to turn off water in one adjacent to it. Mm-hmm. So even if you're saying you're going to split it symbolically and politically, you have to have a special regime for it practically. So you can create the symbolism of sovereignty that is a way to address what, again, are these political needs. But you have to have a very practical approach because real people live there. And the practical approach has to, to deal with the realities of day-to-day life. You make it all sound simple, as though it should just just happen. It's so, it so sounds logical when you speak about it. It's uh, it's too bad that we're we're not there. You've 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 taken some fire in the past. You've been a- accused by by some people of being biased toward Israel. You don't sound it to me. Does that bother you when you when you've heard those accusations? You know, the the conflict is characterized by such passion on each side that for those who see it one way, it's a zero sum. It's either all their way or nothing. And so, you know, for a long time, I will say, I was accused of that, but it was was for political reasons, meaning the the Palestinians, they couldn't attack the president because then the president says, okay, we're gone. Good luck to you. They really couldn't attack the Secretary of State because it's pretty (laughs) much the same thing. But you, you know, the negotiator... It's completely fair game. And I once had one of the Palestinian negotiators say, say to me, literally, he said, one night, we're just the two of us were talking, he goes, you know why we attack you? And I said, of course I know why you're attacking me. He says, but I knew he wanted to tell me anyway. And he said, because we can attack you. <laughs> and the fact that you're Jewish, you know, it gives us a handle. Yeah. Uh, but he also said, but of course we know the, when we have a problem, we don't go to the president, we don't go to the secretary, we go to you. Yeah. We know you're the only one who can solve these things. You know, in fact, I'll tell you, when the end of the Clinton administration, I had a conversation with five weeks to go, and I had a conversation with Arafat. And I said, look, President Clinton's gone in five weeks, and I'm gone in five weeks. 
And he said, well, I know he's leaving, but you can't leave. And I said, no, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving when he's going. And he said, no, you, you can't leave. And I said, we've got five weeks left and I'm gone in five weeks. You know, if we're going to try to solve something, the time to do it is right now. Uh, so this is kind of the reality. There was a reality of, of what the negotiations were like, and then there was a public reality. And look, it's as I said, for those who want to believe something and who have a passion one way or the other, you know, being someone who's trying to solve a conflict, you start on the presence, the, the, basically on the premise that the needs of both sides have to be addressed. You can't just address the needs of one side or you have no agreement. If you're addressing the needs of only one side, you're counting on the other side to surrender. Well, that's not actually an agreement. And if it's right. based on surrender, it won't survive anyway. This is a lesson we learn over and over. I don't know if you've read Roger Fisher's Getting to Yes, but that's exactly the yeah. concept. You identified yourself as being Jewish, and uh, I think I read about you that you, you actually didn't begin to practice as a Jew until after the Six-Day War. Is that true? I would say that's even earlier than I began to practice it. Okay. <laughs> I think the, I grew up in an a-religious house. I had, you know, almost no real religious education. And in the case, in my case, it's when I, after, uh, first I became, I began to identify more as even in a religious sense, not just in a kind of social sense, after I got married. And then when we had kids, then it became more important to me to try to set an example. So we joined a, a synagogue, a shul then, and then that, that became more important. And then I have to say, you know, the interesting thing is when I was our negotiator, the Shabbat came to mean more to me. Uh, I would go to services every Saturday morning, a conservative shul. Mm-hmm. And the value of that was, and everybody knew it. I mean, the president knew, you know, <laughs> Saturday morning, you weren't going to reach me. I mean, if they had to, they knew how to, but they weren't going to reach me. And, it gave me a real perspective. I mean, the whole logic of Shabbat is you're supposed to separate that from the rest of the week. You're supposed to, it's supposed to give you perspective. And, and for me, it did. It gave me a place where I could sit back. It gave me a place where the rabbis of our Torahs constantly made me think about more fundamental questions. And so it created a genuine space for me that I really need. And so that, that also did a lot to add to my sense of not just Jewish identification, but Jewish values and and understanding better the source of those values. Thank you for that. I Again, I read, but don't know this, but I read that you identify as a Democrat. Is that true? That's true. Okay, okay. Don't want to so assume. Not, so okay. Many of the things you read actually turn to be right. You know? Some it's, of uh, them do, but I want to be very careful about, about my sources. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you seem to be the rare person that's been able to completely transcend politics. And while you're dealing with you know, politics between you know, different countries and you know, all the political challenges you've faced, you don't seem to be someone who has been bogged down in Democrat versus Republican. Look, I think I was, look, I was a political appointee for Ronald Reagan and for George H.W. Bush and for Bill Clinton and for Barack Obama. We had an ethos for a long time that politics stopped at the water's edge. And, you know, when you go back to Reagan, the Reagan people knew I was a Democrat and appointed me to the NSC anyway. You know, the the truth is I was a Democrat who developed a close relationship with George H.W. Bush and... And so I, you know, I, I ended up 
being in his campaign as a senior last three months as a senior foreign policy advisor to the campaign. That was based primarily on having developed a personal relationship with him and having, and having come to have an extremely high regard for him. Although I have to say that on domestic issues, I wasn't where, where he was. But on foreign policy issues, I, I very much was. Clinton asked me to stay and then to become the negotiator. And, and I developed a close relationship with him. And President Obama asked me to come in as well. And in, in a sense, all of them, they all accepted this premise that we should have people who are, who are professional on these issues, not political on these issues, or at least your administration should have people in the upper reaches of it that have people who have experience and approach these issues from a professional standpoint, not through a political lens. So I, I once attended a conference and, and I got to see President Clinton and Secretary of State Albright speak together. And, and I loved one of the questions that someone asked Secretary Albright. They asked her, who is your favorite American leader ever? And she didn't miss a beat. She said, Bill Clinton was right next to her. Uh, yeah. I'd like to ask you that question, and you don't have anyone next to you right now. So my question is, of, of all the American leaders you got to work with, and you worked with many, who was your favorite? I have to divide it into, into two categories. My favorite to work with, because he was such a people person, was Clinton. My favorite to work with, from a policy standpoint, was Bush. Interesting. Uh, in the national security areas, you know, uh, he was just, he was very thoughtful. He was very practical. And, you know, there, there just, and there was also a kind of, he had a real personal code that I really respected. I want to, I want to tell you a story because it kind of, please, it says a lot. So as I said, I was the senior foreign policy advisor to the campaign. I got to know him because I was at the NSC, as I said. The Reagan administration brought me back. I was a senior Middle East person there. I went with him on a trip to the Middle East, and and we developed a relationship because I suggested to him on the trip there he could actually achieve something, meaning a common set of principles between Egypt, Jordan, and Israel, which had never been done before. He said, "Go ahead if you can broker it, we'll do it." And so, and I was able to. So that that built kind of an interesting bond. And then I would brief him frequently and so forth. And then he asked me to, to leave the NSC in the summer of, of 88 and be the, the senior foreign policy advisor. So I tell you the story because when he won, Jim Baker, who had been the, the who run the campaign, wanted me to come with him to the State Department. And Brent Scowcroft offered me the deputy national security advisor job. And Bush called me up and he said, I want you to take the position that you want to take. I don't want you to feel pressured either by, by Jim or by Brent. You take the position that, that you feel is best for you. Now think about it. He, wow. For him to take the time to call me to say that, yeah. you know, I'm not sure anybody else I worked for would have done that. He had one other thing about him. When he lost, he sent me a note and he said, I don't want you to leave if, if the president-elect asked you to stay. I don't want you to think that being, by leaving, you're being loyal to me. You'll be loyal to me if you're asked to stay and you stay. Wow. If these were yeah. really extraordinary positions to take. And, and so and that, that kind of personal code 
that really meant a lot. So that's why I would say I, I pick him from this kind of broader policy standpoint. I pick Clinton because, first of all, Clinton could learn anything. You know, I, he would typically say before a meeting, he'd turn to me and say, okay, what do you want me to do in this meeting? And I would outline it A, B, and C. And I, I can be pretty persuasive. And, and when I need to be emotional, I can be emotional. And almost every time, he would do it better than I told him. Because he, he literally could do anything. Uh, I mean, I, since I'm on a roll, I'll tell one other story about him. Please, the last that, one was great. That is very revealing. I mean, in terms of just his sheer talent. So after the, after the assassination of Rabin, we went to Israel. And, and he wanted to give a speech to Israeli young people. And so I really, on the plane on the way over, in addition to briefing, we had, a, we had the former presidents, former secretary of state, congressional leaders. So I, I had to brief them on the shock that, that Israel had experienced and what it meant, how they were there to create a kind of collective hug because of the, the trauma that Israel was feeling. And so the speech that, that Clinton was going to give, especially to Israeli young people, had to be that equivalent of creating this sense of, we're with you, you know, this is a trauma, we understand it, but it had to be emotional. It had to create an emotional connection. So the speechwriters did the draft and gave it to me on the plane over, and I really worked it over. You know, I'm thinking to myself, look, I, I know what will strike a chord in Israel. I obviously have this connection. I understand it. And I decide I also want to watch the speech from the stage so I'm in the so I can look out at the audience to see. So the speech is an unbelievable hit. And everybody from the staff is coming up to me and thanking me. And I say, don't thank me. The 25% of the speech that was pedestrian, I wrote. The 75% that he had lived was all him. He wow. had lived wow. 75% of the speech up there in a way that was simply, and, you know, so far beyond anything that I had done. Wow. So, you know, he, he, he remains, but he was a unique talent. Mm -hmm. By the way, another great bipartisan answer right there. Well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, uh, the, the person who asked Secretary Albright that question then asked for her favorite international leader. I'd like to ask you the same question. Who's yeah. your favorite leader on the international side? Well, there's, it's actually no contest. Yitzhak Rabin. That was her answer too, by the way. Oh, well, look, Rabin was the most, not just honest, the most intellectually honest leader I ever dealt with. Mm -hmm. He wasn't always easy to deal with. If he had, he was the most analytical leader. You know, he would go A, B, C, D, and he would have, he, when he thought something through, you couldn't move him. But, you know, when he, if you had made an argument and reality proved you right, he's the only leader who would come up to me ever and say, you were right and I was wrong. He couldn't tell a lie. He literally couldn't tell a lie. Uh, if he made a commitment to you, it, his political fortunes could collapse if he lived up to it, but he would anyway because that's who he was. And as I said, you know, he was, he was someone didn't lie to the Israeli public and never lied to himself. I could, I could go on and just I keep asking you these questions. I find them, I find your answers to be fascinating. And I know you have expertise that, that covers a far broader area geographically than the Middle East. I'd like to ask you a general question. I read a book called The Next 100 Years. Did you read that book by any chance? I haven't. Yeah, yes. it was it was 
it was a, it was a really fun read uh, by a futurist who wrote it in around around the 2000 period and tried to describe what the world would look like over the next hundred years. Any, what would your guess be? What does the world look like in a hundred years? You know, when you think about the pace of change right now, especially in the medical area, notwithstanding COVID, even even looking at COVID, that we could have developed a vaccine, you know, in less than 50 days is itself extraordinary. We're going to go through a complete revolution in terms of biotech. We're going to be able to, to deal with things we couldn't imagine before. How we deal, by the way, with expanding, extending lifespans dramatically, because the biotech will basically be able to keep cells younger so they don't age the same way. That's going to create enormous challenges that you know we've never really had to contend with. The character of, of travel will, be, will become quite different as well. I suspect we will be able to travel to other planets in that time. And you know that may create all sorts of opportunities to change the climate as we know it. I mean, quite literally the climate as we know it. All these great things we can do technologically, the question is, can we end conflict, which seems to be endemic to human? And we have we every these developments, frequently they, they create all sorts of advances in terms of science and, and medicine and being able to deal with what can be food or water security issues. I have no doubt we'll solve those through technology and biotech. But... I wonder about these conflicts that seem endemic and will these advances, will they simply compound conflicts? I worry about that, even though I see the potential for such profound changes in terms of the way we live, how we interact. I'm very hopeful about a lot of things, as I'm implying, but I'm uneasy about conflicts that seem to endure regardless of change. You, you've probably been described by others as being prolific. You're a prolific writer and speaker and thinker. Do you, do you have balance in your life? Do you, you, you mentioned you're a big sports fanatic. Yeah, I would say I have balance as far as sports. Would I say that I'm as interesting a person as I should be? No. You know, I should be much more interested in the arts. I should be much more interested in culture. I should, I should read many more novels, meaning I read almost exclusively nonfiction. Yeah. Right? I don't read fiction. I mean, I think I would be a more balanced person if I, you know, if I had that kind of interest, which I, I should have but don't. But I do think sports gives me a balance I otherwise wouldn't have. And maybe that's part of the reason I'm such a fanatic. Although I have to say from the time I was a little kid, I was, I became a huge sports nut. I mean, I'm from San Francisco. So I became, I, I went to every 49er home game from the time I was four years old until I went away to college. I used to go to candlestick in San Francisco and, you know, where you, you basically have to dress like it's winter I've for been there. a game during the summer. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still, I'm, and you know, I went I went to Warrior Games when I was a kid, and so I'm a huge fan of all of them. Still, those first kinds of identifications in sports, you know, they, you never give them up. Even though I have to say, yeah. I have become you can't live in Washington and not become a supporter of, of the Washington teams. But when push comes to shove, if they're playing 
one of the San Francisco teams, those original allegiances come out. Yeah, I completely understand. Uh, the Nationals seem to have punted this year. They seem to have unloaded all their great players. Well, they just dismantled the team, so yes. <laughs> they're, they basically are betting on the future now. We'll see how the bet goes. Do you have awareness around how much you've probably changed the world, your actions? Do you think about that? Not really. I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my aim is to try to change things. But I think, you know, <laughs> the one thing you have to retain when you do the kind of things I've done is you better retain a very large measure of humility. Uh, because if you don't, you lose all perspective. And, you know, there are so many unknowns. You said before, I can lay out things that are very logical about what can be done. But, you know, the, the world has a way of imposing behaviors that you don't predict. And so I tell my students, don't fall in love with your own assumptions. Because, you know, you should constantly be checking them. And that's part of, I think, trying to retain humility. When it comes to the Middle East... I may lay out, here's what, how things should be done, and I, and I can make the case. But I also realize that you have to be pretty humble. I can't imagine the answer to this question is going to be yes, but do you have any regrets about your career? No, I don't. I really don't have regrets about my career. I don't have, you know, I mean, I will tell you, I have one regret about at the beginning of the Obama administration, I made a mistake. I was asked to come to the White House to for a new position that they would create that would be responsible for the area from Morocco to, to all through all of South Asia. And I chose instead to go with, with Hillary. And the reason I did was I, I knew her from the time of when I was, I was president Clinton's negotiator. I knew her well, and I really liked her and I knew she was very smart and very thoughtful. And I, I felt she would be successful, but I also, the mistake was that I thought she would be in a position much like Jim Baker. When I went, I made the choice to go with Baker and not with Scowcroft because I really had the sense that Baker was going to be where you could conceptualize the policy and then implement it. The action would be at the State Department. And that proved to be exactly right in the Bush administration. I thought it would be the same in the Obama administration because I knew Hillary had the the talent. And I thought President Obama was going to be consumed by the economic meltdown. But the decision I made was wrong, because basically every decision had to be made in the White House. And had I gone at the beginning of the administration there instead of to the State Department, I would have had a chance to prevent us from making what was a really serious mistake, insisting on a complete settlement freeze, which was a fundamental mistake. Uh, and I, I I made it clear to the president when I was asked one time, because I was my focus in the first six months was exclusively on Iran mm -hmm. uh, and not on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But he would ask when I would be over there to talk about Iran, he would ask me questions. And I and it was clear nobody made the case at the beginning of the administration not to go ahead and, and proceed with a with a settlement freeze. And the reason it was wrong-headed was twofold. First, no Israeli prime minister had ever done a complete settlement freeze please. So you're asking someone like Bibi Netanyahu, who is a right-wing Likudnik, to do what the prime ministers to his left did not do. So you had to create great drama. But it was also a big, a, a big mistake because when you insisted on a complete settlement freeze, you gave the Arabs and the Palestinians an excuse to do nothing until you delivered. We were put in a position, we were trapped by our own position and the objective we laid out. Fundamental mistake of statecraft. 
if we had said we're going to limit settlement activity, then we could define what was success. And we didn't do that. And had I been there, I can't guarantee that President Obama would have agreed with me, but I can guarantee that he would have heard it at a time when the policy was still being formulated. Was Secretary Clinton sympathetic to your position? She was, but she also felt that this is what the president wanted. And the first year, she was kind of picking and choosing her battles. And she was in a position where she had to decide what's the most important thing in terms of her priorities. And this was important, but it wasn't, it didn't rank nearly as high as some of the other issues she was focused on. And she also read him as being determined to do this, but nobody really made the case against it. And the result was, you know, I I can't guarantee, as I said, things would have been different, but I regret that uh, I didn't go to the White House when I was asked. Look, I can tell you, I think some of the people at the White House viewed me through a, a suspicious lens because why would I go with Hillary rather than the president Mm -hmm. when I was asked to go with the president? You know, Hillary, for her own part, in the first year, she understood that some of the White House staff looked at her through the same kind of prism. And that's, again, why I think she she kind of had to pick and choose her spots. You know, after the first year, she had really created a relationship with President Obama that was different. So she she could be much more competent. An example being she pushed but didn't succeed she wanted us in Syria arm at least a secular opposition. And she made the case, even though she knew the president was against it. Now, that was the kind of thing, had it been the first year of the administration, again, she would have to decide, was that important enough for her to try to do? Who are your key role models or mentors over the years? Well, I'll tell you, probably the person I learned the most from was Jim Baker. He was, and what's interesting, Baker is not someone who is a great theoretician. And, you know, and I'm, you know, I was trained, I was trained as an academic and that's, you know, he was a lawyer and he was very, you know, he was focused on how you get things done, but I watched him negotiate and he was a, he was constantly thinking three, four moves ahead. And I've rarely seen, I've rarely been around anybody who had both the understanding that's what you had to do, but also the capacity to do it. And I learned, you know, I, I, I learned a, a number of lessons from him. In addition to what I just described, one of the lessons I learned is never for the sake of having a good meeting, leave any potential for misunderstanding. I always say, you know, one lesson I learned was when you're in a negotiation, at the end of a meeting, summarize very clearly exactly what's been done, even if it means you add to a sense of of difference. Many people want to have good feelings at the end of a meeting, and if the good feelings disguise uh, a problem, that problem will be made much worse. Because one of the things I learned over time is no one ever thinks that it was a misunderstanding by, you know, by just, that it just stands on its own, that no one intended anything. They see it as a betrayal. So you really have to be sure that everybody understands things the same way, even if it means that you're going to emphasize a different, and it goes against the normal human instinct. But Baker is the one who really taught me that. So I think I probably learned more from him than anybody else that that I was around. That's a great lesson, too. Dennis, what do you think your legacy will be? Well, I hope my legacy will be that I was someone, you know, who believed passionately in in conflict resolution, especially in the Middle East, and that I worked for that, and that, you know, I contributed in some way to trying to move things in a better direction. I've got three more really quick questions for you. 
Can you offer any habits or techniques or tips that, that have helped you be your most extraordinary self? Well, I think being an active listener, what I mean by that is you always learn more when you're listening than when you're, but also if you want to draw somebody out, you have to show genuine curiosity. You really, you know, try to make it very clear. You really do want to understand where, whoever you're dealing with, where they're coming from. Why do they have the views they have? What created them? And drawing people out and showing that you're interested in and you're trying to understand them better. I think it's probably one of the most important attributes in any endeavor, but certainly in any negotiation, being an active listener is probably the most important attribute. Thank you. And what's the best advice you've ever received from someone or given to someone? Probably the best advice was don't take yourself too seriously. That's definitely good advice. And if you, and if you can't take a joke, don't show up. I like that too. I, I'd like to end with, a, with a, a question that may relate to your answer about legacy. It may not. Do you have a personal mission? Well, you know, look, this, I, I tell the story. I started actually off as an arms control negotiator. And, you know, that was all abstractions. Very important. Arms control doesn't end conflicts, but it tries to regulate them and manage them. But it was all abstractions. I mean, are you, at the time when I was doing it with the Soviets and then the Russians, it was, you know, the size of missiles, their throw weight, the, the payload, the bombs they could carry, based on a theory of what makes things more stable versus less stable. When I began to work on the Arab-Israeli issue and I would, and I sat with the different negotiators on each side, every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. And this is a conflict with a human face. So the personal mission is, I will never give up on trying to, to lessen that conflict. Even if it can't be solved right now, I will continue to try to do whatever I can to lessen it and try to create the conditions for eventually settling it. Well, I want to thank you, Dennis. That was a very, very interesting interview. As I said, I could go on forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. Any parting words to leave for our listeners? I just, look, I, I enjoyed doing it very much. And I, I, I do have, you know, I have what I call an empathy rule in negotiations. Empathy is not self-sacrifice. It's basically enlightened self-interest. If you want to move somebody, then you have to show you understand their needs. And if you want them to meet your needs, or if you're mediating, you want them to meet the other side's needs, you have to prove in the first instance that you genuinely understand their needs. I used to say I could make the arguments of each side better than they could, not because I was so smart, but because I'd heard them so often. My sense is if we all could, could get our hands around that insight, we would have a world of much less conflict. And uh, with that, I want to thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the extraordinary Dennis Ross. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with 16 offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.